All right, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we have a lot to do, so let's move quick. Romans chapter 1. For the sermon this morning, I had to record an introduction, because when I went home and listened to the sermon, um, all you hear is me saying, Sarah, hang up your phone! Right? Okay? And uh, when I listen to that with headphones, I'm like, people online are not going to have any idea what is going on. So I basically had to say, hey, this morning at Victory Baptist Church, uh, someone decided to get up and leave during the middle of the sermon, okay, to answer their it phone. Sarah. It was Sarah. Right. I, I had said that. I mean, they already know because I yell, <laughs> yell at the thing. But I had to explain that it, I wasn't like, because it comes across like there's some teenager sitting in the church, and I'm like, Sarah, put down the phone. I'm like, no. Okay, okay. Okay. So, so I, I had to explain. It was a joke. There was, and, I, and I made some joke at the end, like, no one at Victory Baptist Church was harmed in the, you know, making of the service, right? Okay. No, one's a, no one was psychologically scarred, as far as I know. So um, if you do listen to that sermon again, uh, th- that's why there's an introduction, all right? So tonight, let's try to remind us what we're doing. Romans chapter 1. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we, um, we looked at that, we took it apart. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul uses four identifiers to identify himself. These identifiers are used to demonstrate the power of the gospel. He uses Paul, he uses servant, he uses apostle, he uses separated. At the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he speaks of Paul being, or himself being separated unto the gospel. That introduces the subject for the whole book, all right? Then he tells us something about the gospel, right? So the subject is introduced, the gospel, the end of verse 1. Then we have the gospel, which is the subject, promised in verse 2. And when was it promised? Which he had promised afore or beforehand by his prophets. And where do we read about these promises? Well, read it. And the Holy Scriptures, which obviously he's referring to the Old Testament. All right. So that got me thinking, well, where do these pro- where are these promises found in the Old Testament? Where are these promises found? Okay. So I had everyone look up a whole bunch of passages. Um, five is what I needed from everyone. And uh, uh, most of you looked them up. I don't know how many total. Twyla said she had eight. I don't know how many ev- everyone had. But when we, look, when we started looking at some of them this morning, like part of me wants to look at everything you found. But the point of having those and for you doing that is, for, is to try to demonstrate that when you start looking at Old Testament passages, trying to find out how they apply or how they relate to something in the New Testament, then try to see how the New Testament writers use some of those Old Testament passages, you start finding kind of a hermeneutical problem, right? And the one that I used didn't necessarily do with the gospel was Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, citing Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Everyone remember that? Okay. And you look at that in your way. Hosea, in Hosea chapter 11, he's looking back 700 years, Right? Matthew is trying to act like he was looking forward 700 years. What is going on? So we started raising this question that when the New Testament writers use Old Testament passages, it raises hermeneutical questions. And mainly about this, I think Diane said this when I asked this morning, is that sometimes it looks like they're ripping them out of context. In other words, when you you look at the New Testament, you're like, oh, they cite this Old Testament verse. You go back to the Old Testament verse and you're like, that's not the con. What? 
What's going on? That should make you stop and go, hmm, i got to figure this out. Because this determines how we're going to interpret a lot of things when it comes to the Bible. Does that make sense? So, here we go. We decided, or I gave you, how many, t- how many different views there are and how to explain this or how to understand it. How many did I give everyone? Seven. All right. What are the seven different approaches to this problem? And everybody understands the problem, right? I got a New Testament quoting an Old Testament passage. I go to the Old Testament passage and it looks like, what? Like, I mean, again, Hosea is a great example. I mean, I don't think I need more than that. Okay. All right. But some of the ones you quoted started kind of demonstrating some of those same issues, all right? I think the one Sarah quoted was a really good one to kind of begin to demonstrate this kind of an issue. All right, there are seven. What are the seven different approaches? Number one, census plenor, all right? Number two, Jewish exegetical, all right? I know it's a hard word. Three, canonical reinterpretation. Four, Full human intent. Five. Eclectic. Six. Analogical. Seven. Typological. Okay, you got those seven? All right. Now, uh, some, just make sure you know, some hermeneutic books wouldn't break these down into seven separate. They would try to make these some of these like subcategories of one of the other main points. I just put them down at seven and decided I'm trying to simplify it instead of trying to get into, well, why and how does this apply? Does that make sense? Now, thinking caps on, right? Okay, we're getting ready to dive into basically, this is not even really freshman hermeneutics. We're kind of getting, I don't know, junior, senior, maybe hermeneutics, maybe. We're getting, we're getting in. We're going in, okay? Everybody ready? Everybody get, like, ready to get completely confused? Okay, all right. All right, so um, I want to make sure I reiterate this because I think Sarah asked the question and it's very important, or I don't know, someone else may have. Um, how does this differ from our general understanding of hermeneutics? Remember, we have a general understanding of hermeneutics and how they may apply generally, but you have some specific types of literature and some specific things going on that require a more specialized approach. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. I hope so. I hope this makes sense. Whew, this, is, this is not going to be fun. All right, here we go. Number one, the census planor view. Everybody ready? The census planor view. The census planor, or the term, <clears throat> means fuller sense. And it refers to an additional, deeper meaning of an old Testament passage. It refers to an additional, deeper meaning of an Old Testament passage. All right? Now, I'm going to be adding a lot here, so I'm just going to go slow. Please note, all of these notes will show up in the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section of the church app. Okay? So, you'll have them there as well. But I'm going to, I'm going to build this block by block. Everybody ready? Somebody say that again. This refers to an additional, deeper meaning of an Old Testament passage, which was a... Right, everybody ready? Somebody do that again. The, the census planor means fuller sense, and it refers to an additional, deeper meaning of an Old Testament passage, which was a 
intended by God. Everybody got that? B, not intended or understood by the human author. Everybody got that? Let's do those again. A, intended by God. B, not intended or understood by the human author. C, not understood by the original audience. And and D is the real one you really need to understand, okay? So before I say D, let's make sure everybody understands A, B, and C. Everybody understand A? Right? That this fuller sense, right, this deeper meaning was intended by God, that God intended it. B, it was not intended or understood by the human author. The human author who wrote it didn't really understand what was going on, didn't understand this deeper meaning, didn't see the deeper meaning, didn't even know there was a deeper meaning. Right? C, was not understood by the original audience. So when the original audience read it, they had no idea that this was a deeper meaning, there was anything there. Right? Now here, this is very important. Everybody ready? D, not known to exist until it was discerned and revealed by the New Testament writer. Not known to exist until it was discerned and revealed by the New Testament writer. All right, does everybody understand those, all of those things? Okay, uh, yeah, let me read that again. I'll read D again. <clears throat> Make sure everybody has it down. All right, let me find it. Got pages and notes here. Okay, here we go. D, not known to exist until it was discerned and revealed by the New Testament writer. Now apply that view to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Right? Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 uses Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, saying that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Correct? We look at it. First, I don't even, it doesn't seem to even make sense that he fulfilled the prophecy. B, that definitely doesn't appear to be the original tent. So this view would come along and try to make some kind of argument like this. All right? That it, <clears throat> that it had, that Hosea 11.1 1 had a deeper meaning, a deeper meaning, which was intended by God. God intended it to be there. B, it was not intended or understood by the human author. Hosea did not have a clue. All right? C, not understood by the original audience. They would have never caught on. You know, no clue. And D, no one would have known it even existed. Right? No one would know today that it even existed until what? Until the New Testament writer of Matthew revealed it. A, B, no, A, B, C, D, all of them. Okay, very good, yes, all all of them. Yeah, they all go together. They all go together. 
Does that make sense? You know, you see how they would use, you see how that fits with Matthew 11, how they would use it? Now, does that work all the time? This is the question. And we got, we got to, I mean, right there. Now, what we just gave you is like, now that's like junior high understanding of census planor. We got a long ways to go. Okay. But that's given us uh, at least a basic idea. Does everybody see how that works? Now, what I want you to realize is most of the time when you read the Bible, you don't even consider something like this. But this is what hermeneutics is all about. Considering this kind of stuff. Reading the text. Trying to figure it out. Trying our best. All right. Let's add some more to our understanding of census planoria. Everybody ready? Everybody got A, B, C, and D. Correct? All right. There's no more letters, so that's good. All right. Does anybody need me to repeat any of them? All right. Here we go. This is very important. According to the census planor view, the Holy Spirit embedded a hidden meaning in the Old Testament passage, even though the original human author and audience was completely unaware of it, and the New Testament citations of the Old Testament often bring out the fuller meaning. All right. So the Holy Spirit basically placed a hidden meaning inside some Old Testament passages, and the fuller meaning or the fuller sense, census plenor, is revealed when the New Testament writer uses it. All right. T- tell me when you're done or if you need me to repeat anything. Good? 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 Okay, I'll read it one more time. It's kind of repeating what we've just done with the letters, but I'll, I'll say it again. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. According to the census planor view, the Holy Spirit embedded a hidden meaning in the Old Testament passage, even though the original human author and audience were completely unaware of it. And the New Testament citations of the Old Testament are bringing out or revealing the fuller sense or the fuller meaning. Right? Okay, everybody got that. Now, this is where we need to use logic. Right? The census planor view would then, it would demand that the only time you could argue that there is some hidden, hidden meaning is when a New Testament writer cites it. You can't run around going, oh, I think there's a hidden meaning. No, the census planor view doesn't allow that. The census planor view says, if you want to know the fuller meaning, you find me a New Testament citation, the way they use it, that's the meaning. You don't get to assign one. The New Testament writer gets to assign one. Now, if you keep it right there, great. Now, some people go, oh, there's a hidden meaning in the Old Testament? Okay, let's go. Okay, what happened here? Oh, this person walked six miles. Well, I bet you six miles actually represents, and then, well, you get to the allegorical nonsense because they think everything had a hidden meaning. All right, that's not the, the census planor view is not allowing for anarchy. It is allowing for you to go, okay. Yeah, the New Testament writer, they reveal the meaning. So how do you understand the Old Testament? So that means an Old Testament passage would have how many meanings? Two. 
how the original would have understood it and what the New Testament writer reveals about its senses plenor, its fuller sense. It's fuller sense. Without the New Testament, the fuller sense of the passage cannot be understood. It cannot be understood by you. It can only be understood by the New Testament writer. The New Testament writer lays the parameter, right? It puts the, 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 the uh, curb on the road, right? Now, so again, when you get, when you get Chris, Protestant Christians handling the Bible, they don't believe there's a curb, they don't believe there's a road, they don't, I don't know what they believe, but... This would argue that there is, all right? Does that make sense? We're not done here, all right? Okay. All right, thinking capsign. So far, so good? This one seems like, I like this a lot in a lot of ways, correct? Because it, it, it takes away a lot of difficulties, all right? But now let's see what they're going to do here. Because if there's one uh, you usually do, and in and, and, and good seminaries, what you typically do is, you never answer a question. You just keep raising more questions. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to raise a problem. Here we go. This thinking cap sign. The difficulty with this view is that the wedge that is driven between the human and divine intention of the Old Testament text appears to be inconsistent with the dual authorship of Scripture and seems to lead to some form of dictation theory of inspiration. All right. Does everybody know the different uh, views on inspiration? No? I got, I, no? Okay. Okay. Well, I know I've taught them here like multiple times. Okay. But, all right. I'm not going to go through all the different views now. Okay. Because then we'll end up. All right. There's a lot of different views of inspiration. All right. The, the idea of the dictation understanding of inspiration is the human author, the, hu- the human part of, because there's dual authorship, God and man. All right. The dictation destroys the man in the writing process as simply being a tool. Right? That he's simply there going, like, literally God gives him every single word and he writes down every single word. That's the dictation theory. Most all Christians reject the dictation theory. Right? Almost everyone does. Okay? Um, there may be someone out there. Now, you've got a lot of average Christians who don't know the clue and they think the dictation theory sounds like the doctrine of inspiration, but it's not. Typically, it's understood that God inspires it, but the man, the writer, they show up in it. Right? The, the way they write, their personality, the, the different things come through, right? That shows, oh, that seems like it's Paul. Oh, wait, that, you could tell that's Peter, right? You, now, many Christians never catch on to that because they don't read careful enough to go, where do I see the, like, like if, you, if, you, if you blindfold some Christians and you tell them to read this book and this book, they would not be able to go, I think there's a different author, now, the reason Christians can't do that, and, and, and now you've got to be rude, they don't care to read the Bible careful enough. Right? I mean, you should, I mean, you should be able to do that with a lot. I mean, a, a lot of people are very good to do that with literature. You're like, well, okay, that clearly is not that author. Right? I mean, I think sometimes in, in, in literature you can pick that out pretty quick. I mean, hopefully you can. Now, I don't know if people can if you picked uh, two authors who are writing s- somewhat in the similar d- same time frame. 
That would be interesting. But, um, so, the dictation theory, and they're saying this kind of destroys the dictation, this kind of destroys the dual authorship and almost imposes a dictation, right? That God is saying, write it this way, because there's a deeper meaning here. Now, that I don't know. They're just like, I don't know what that means. Now, 700 years later, so, I mean, I'm going to die never knowing what it means. Like, you see that that could pose a possible problem. Right? I, I do see how it could pose a possible problem, but we'd have to get into a deeper understanding of the different views of inspiration. Just please note, Christians don't even agree on views of inspiration. Right? I mean, it's just the amount of disagreement sometimes is just startling to me, but that's the case. Let's see what else they go on to hear, all right, and say. In addition, it consists of a denial, right, of the single meaning of the Old Testament. All right? That, there, that this would seem to argue that there could be dual meanings, not a single meaning. All right? Now, this gets into, a, a, I think it's called perspicuity, perspicuity of the scriptures, and we could get into a whole discussion of perspicuity, but we're not going to get into that now. But, okay. See, some of these issues they're raising, we would have to go study those issues because some of you don't even know those issues that they're bringing up, right? Just get the idea. They would be arguing that they're saying that this view would say that there is two meanings, not just one, but it would only be arguing that there are two meanings in the passages where the deeper meaning is revealed later. I don't know if it's necessarily a destruction of a single meaning because I don't even know. Like, we would have to get into a whole discussion about that, but let's continue, all right? has two applications, but one meaning. I don't know, like, you know, you, you, now we could start splitting hairs and really could get into a, a discussion about that. But I don't want to turn it into that, but at some point we'll have to deal with all these different issues. All right. Okay. Um, God has chosen to reveal truth through the words of a written text. If the meaning of a given Old Testament passage is not found in the words themselves and it cannot be discerned through a careful analysis of those words as communicated in their original setting, where exactly is that meaning, and how can the passage in which it is hidden be considered revelation? Uh, Now we're getting to a good question. All right, let me read that again. All right, everybody ready? Thinking caps on? I'm going to say that like a hundred times tonight. All right. If the meaning of a given Old Testament passage is not found in the words themselves and it cannot be discerned through a careful analysis of those words as communicated in their original setting, where exactly is that meaning and how can the passage in which it is hidden be considered revelation? As someone wrote, this view surely leaves the Old Testament text as the orphan text with a lesser revelatory value than the New Testament. All right. I do agree what they're saying. If I go to Hosea 11, and I can't understand that, because I can't according to the censor plenor view. I can't understand it, right? If I go read Hosea 11, I can't understand it without going to Matthew. Therefore, was it revelation? Right? Now, I could have come back and make it, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, like if I was having a debate in seminary, I'd be like, but wait, 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 wait. Maybe it did reveal something by the words that were used 
in the original context. The only thing missing was the deeper meaning, which could not be understood. So it was revelatory and what its original intent was, and the hidden revelation is revealed in the New Testament. I don't necessarily make it, don't, I don't believe that makes it an orphan text that is less revelatory than the New Testament. And not only that, some of these arguments are applying this principle to every Old Testament passage. It would only apply to the three, around 300 passages that are cited in the New Testament. That's all we're dealing with. Don't, don't fall, that's kind of a, 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 a bad, that's a, a logical fallacy, right? They're taking a concept that's dealing with the passages cited in the New Testament and applying it to all. You should, that, I mean, that, that's a major logical fallacy everyone should have caught, caught really quick. So, but do you see how I would kind of argue against their, their pushback? I'd like, well, wait a minute. I can understand Hosea 11.1 1 in its original context, can't you? Let's look at it. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. If you remember what it says. Sometimes people online get mad because they're like, well, you should just open the Bible and read it. Well, so I just assume sometimes that everybody knows what I'm talking about. And, right? Because, I mean, I mentioned Hosea 11, 1, and everybody went home and spent all day reading it, right? So, I know. I probably I shouldn't think that way, but okay, right? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, when I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, can everybody understand that? With the words that are used? It's referring to Israel when Israel was called out of Egyptian bondage. I got no problem with that. Now, now I'm not saying that this view even works with Hosea 11.1, but I'm applying it to Hosea 11 verse 1. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not saying that the census of the Lenore people may not even agree that it works with Hosea 11.1. But, so I can understand it, right? But what can I not understand? That that has anything to do with Jesus. Right? Because that's clearly looking where? It's looking back. No, it's looking backwards. In the context. Yeah, in the context, it's looking backwards, right? Context is looking backwards. So I don't get it, right? Now when I get to the New Testament, what all of a sudden is revealed? That there was a deeper meaning here. Okay, all right? Now I don't even understand how it even is looking. I mean, I don't, like, this verse doesn't make any sense to me even that way. But that's a different, that's a different hermeneutical problem, okay? But from the census planor view, I don't think it makes it less revelatory, right? I don't think it makes it unable to discern what it means with the words that are used. It does mean that I cannot discern the hidden meaning by the words that are used. And that is troubling from a hermeneutical standpoint. Yeah, you wouldn't even have a clue. So that, in that sense, it is hidden. So God does hide a meaning that can only be explained later. So it does raise a few hermeneutical issues, but not quite as bad as they, they argue against. But they're trying to be fair. They're trying to be fair, right? Any questions about the census plenor view? All right. So what's the main thing you re- need to remember about the census plenor view? That they are arguing that passages in the Old Testament that are cited in the New Testament contain a deeper hidden meaning. That meaning cannot be understood by anyone until we read the New Testament writers' citing of it. Then that reveals the hidden message. All right? 
But the main thing to remember about the census point of view, is that arguing that every Old Testament passage has a hidden meaning? No. Because if it did, unless a New Testament writer uses it, you couldn't know the meaning. What else does it restrict? It's not for you to go, what's the hidden meaning? No, it's for me to go, is this passage cited in the New Testament? There's the hidden meaning. So who, so what's the hermeneutical guidelines to interpreting it? The New Testament citation. What's the hermeneutical rule for understanding it or interpreting it? The New Testament citation. What is the hermeneutical rule for interpreting it? New Testament citation. Not you! Right? Like, people want to argue about Romans 11. Right? In a sense, we've kind of played the census plenor view, right? Because they, it, they quoted from Isaiah, the, one, the passage you gave. Well, the, 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 the passage in Isaiah told us it was about Israel, and they use it about... Now, you can't come along and go, no, 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 that's not Israel. That's not Israel. That's the church. Well, well, well wait, what, 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 what hermeneutical principle are you using on me here? Because, what, he, uh, Romans chapter 11, Paul says, what? He's talking about Israel, right? Hey, Israel has been set aside. Wait, the church has been set aside? No national Israel. Why? Well, that's a different, yeah, that's a different view. Okay, so Roman, uh, Israel's been set aside to make who jealous? Gentiles, right? Until the Gentiles have, or, or the Gentiles have been brought in to make the Jews jealous, right? And then finally, Israel will be saved. And they cite the passage in Isaiah. Well, like, you can't come along and just give it a different meaning because you want to. Does that make sense? You would be restricted. Paul would identify how he's understanding it, right? See, like, it's just sometimes when you have these uh, hermeneutical arguments with people, you're like, what? Where did you come up with your system of hermeneutics? And they're like, I, uh, I don't know. Well, why are you having a hermeneutical argument? Does that make sense? So what determines the meaning? Citation, right? And if the New Testament citation is citing it literally the way it's cited in <laughs> the Old Testament, like in your case, it was about Israel? About Israel. Now, if all of a sudden it's citing an Old Testament passage like you think, well, I think that's about Jesus, and they cite it being about, you know, who knows what, you know, a rock. Well, then guess what? The New Testament passage trumps. Right. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Now, according to this view. Now, if you don't like this view, we'll have to see where we go. All right. Now, I hope that makes sense right there. All right. The census planor view. All right. Any questions? No? All right. That brings us to view number two, which is? Okay. Oh, boy. All right. Just even saying it's hard enough. All right. The Jewish exegetical. Sometimes it's referred to as the Jewish exegetical method. Sometimes it's reviewed as the Jewish exegetical view. You just call it the Jewish exegetical something. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm going to try my best to help us with this. If understanding something of ancient grammar and history helps us understand what biblical passages mean, then understanding something of ancient interpretive practices help us understand how New Testament authors interpret their own scripture. Right? 
Let me read that again, all right? And you don't have to write this down. The main thing here is try to understand what's being said. Don't try to uh, write all of this down because it's long, okay? Everybody ready? When we get to it, when, we can, I, when I can summarize it, I'll summarize it for you. If understanding something of ancient grammar and history helps us understand what Bible passages mean, then understanding something of ancient interpretive practices help us understand how New Testament authors embrace the Jewish exegetical method. Right? Let me make sure I explain it this way. When I'm reading, understanding ancient grammar, right, and I'm reading something that's ancient, that's very key in helping me do what? Interpret it. Right? So if understanding ancient grammar and history helps us understand what biblical passages mean, then understanding something of ancient interpretive practices help us understand how New Testament authors interpret their own scriptures. All right. What are they trying to say? Okay. When I pick up a book, right, and they're citing ancient scripture, I need to understand how, what interpretive practices they used then, right? And then that gives me some understanding on how they are using it. Now, again, this is, I've, I've done this before when people want to argue with me. I'll be like, well, what's the uh, ancient uh, interpretive principles being used in 33 AD? Go. And people will do what? I don't understand the interpretive principles being used in 2019. Well, then why are you arguing, right? Okay, right? Does that, that make sense? I don't even know all the, inter- the principles used at that time. But this raises a lot of questions. Because again, what do we have a tendency to do? Well, we have a tendency to make sure, I'll put it really blunt because I love being, you know, nice. All right. We have a tendency to be so arrogant that we think it belongs to us. It doesn't. Right? It's a gift. But the original words were given to original people who had original ways of understanding it. Understanding the way they understood things is critical in reading something that was originally written to them. Does that make sense? Right? Does that make sense? Like if I read Shakespeare, I got to understand how people then would have understood what Shakespeare said. Because I'm not trying to make Shakespeare make sense in, in a sense in 2019. I'm trying to take myself back to the time Shakespeare wrote and understand how it was understood then. Does that make sense? Because if I'm not careful, I'll make Shakespeare be saying something that Shakespeare never said. Right, does that make sense? All right, so they're going to explain this a little bit more. I just want to make sure we, we try to explain that a little bit. All right, here we go. All right, this assumption, now please note, that was an assumption we just read. That was an assumption. This assumption has led some interpreters to embrace the Jewish exegetical method or view. According to this view, here we go. Now we're going to try to define this view. You ready? According to this view, the New Testament writers 
utilize the Jewish interpretive method of their day in handling the Old Testament. According to this view, the New Testament writers utilized the Jewish interpretive methods of their day in handling the Old Testament. <coughs> um, Twyla, can you look in the back in the library? It's a, a little small book. I think it's called uh, Protestant uh, Interpretation. Or okay, yeah, see if it's back there. Small book, Protestant Interp- Interpretation Methods. I can't remember the name of it. I've told everybody in this church to read the book like a hundred times. Let's see, I think it's back there. Yeah, there it is. Had to read this book 9,000 times in school. Okay, all right. It's called Protestant Biblical Interpretation. All right. It's been in the library since the church has been here. All right. And guess what this book... Let me see here. Get the introduction. Look what it begins with. Historical schools. Hmm, I wonder where we're going to go. I know where we're going to go. Oh, Greek. We got the Greeks. Their use of allegory. Oh, and look what's number two. What do you think number two could be? Jewish. Ah. Isn't it amazing things that I tell you to read come back 10 years, 15 years later, right? Okay. 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 Well, if you read the book, you would remember it. Okay. All right. So, and you, and you can tell, uh, like, I typically hate under, like, this book is marked all up because, like, uh, whew, this is some, this is, when you got to pass a test on this kind of thing, oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Nightmare flashbacks. Okay. All right. So, um, but, yes, when you study hermeneutics, guess one of the things you have to study? The historical schools of thought, right? You've got to go to the historical schools of thought to know how, because in many cases I'm reading things that would have been applicable to the, so how did they understand it? That's a general hermeneutical rule. They're taking the general hermeneutical rule, and now what they're doing with the general hermeneutical rule is saying, okay, wait a minute, the New Testament writers cite it, then we have to understand that their citation is using the ancient Jewish interpretive methods of their time. Does that make sense? So, now, this one raises all kinds of problems, right? I'll, yeah. Well, let me finish this because this one, yeah, I've got a lot of blunt things to say about this one. Hang on because I'm getting ready to start messing up my uh, notes here. I've got the marker out and it's turning it pink and purple. Okay, all right. I don't know what's going on. Okay. Do I? Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Everybody ready? All right. So does everybody understand the basic argument here? I'll read it again. According to this view, the New Testament writers utilized the Jewish interpretive methods of their day in handling the Old Testament. These methods, all right? You want some of these methods? Do you? All right. Midrash, that's probably not the right way to, uh, to pronounce it, but Midrash, Pesher, and Allegory. These are three Jewish 
ways of interpreting it, right? I'm not going to go through each one, and I know I'm mispronouncing some of this. Consist of a significant departure. Listen, they consist from a significant departure from the grammatical historical method. Now, does everybody know why that's significant? What, what method of uh, hermeneutics almost we, that we use? Historical, grammatical method, right? Okay. Or supposed to. Sometimes when y'all make arguments, y'all don't. But okay. The grammatical, sometimes I don't know what y'all are using. Okay. But grammatical, historical method. And they led the New Testament writers to derive meanings from the Old Testament that were often radically distinct from those in the minds of Old Testament authors. Right? Okay. Does that does that make some sense? Okay. Um, let's see. Um, they go on. Uh, the historical context of the New Testament made it inevitable that New Testament writers would employ, at least to some degree, the exegetical methods that were common in their culture. Apart from the fact that this view is a subset of the censor plenor view, please see they make it a subset. We don't need to worry about making it a subset. And therefore inherits its weaknesses. The primary difficult with this approach is that it advocates simply, it, it advocates its advocates simply presuppose it as a historical necessity. As if the exegetical procedures of the culture forced the New Testament writers to interpret the Old Testament in this manner. But God is not bound by culture, and neither are his spokesmen. These exegetical methods may have been acceptable in first century Palestine, but not in a biblical worldview where the fulfillment of prophets' words must be objective and verifiable. All right? If the New Testament writers were using common Jewish exegetical methods, why did they come to such different interpretations than the Jews of that day? That would be a good argument, because the New Testament writers obviously were not accepting the way the Jews of that day were interpreting the Old Testament. They rejected it, right? Okay, so here is my biggest problem with this one, all right? Trying to figure out, because now, now you have to do what? You have to do a lot of speculation, right? Okay, so I, I come along, so let's just use the Matthew one, right? Okay, what interpretive, Jewish interpretive principle was the writer of Matthew using to interpret Hosea 11 the way that he did? Right? Can any of you answer that question? which would mean you would have no way of understanding why he used it that way. At, okay, unless you start learning Jewish interpretive principles. And obviously, you're not running out there trying to do so, right? Because, well, okay, right. Nobody's trying to do so. Number two, uh, so you see, that's the problem. Number two, according to that view, in this particular case, I should be able to go to a Hosea chapter 11 using ancient Jewish interpretive principles... And same result. And there's no way in everything I've ever studied about Jewish hermeneutics that I would be able to interpret Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 the way the writer of Matthew 
does. See the kind of few problems with this one? Because, see, this one is not about some hidden meaning. This is about a meaning that's there that can be extracted by simply using the right hermeneutical... I don't... I, 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 I will argue this. I think in some cases that may be true. They don't. They don't. Because this... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they don't really here try to give the views. This is just, or trying to give you like examples of how this plays out. They're just trying to help you understand the views, right? And because then what the seminary professor would do is like, okay, here's 15 passages. Now you go apply each view, okay, right? And that, yeah, that's, and see which, and then I'm going to give you an F, okay, because no matter what you answer is going to be wrong. That's a good professor right there. Okay, all right. So. Does everybody under, at least understand that view? I know it's a little complicated, but I tried my best to work it down. If, to summarize, what would be the view? The New Testament writers were simply using the exegetical methods of interpretation of their time. And those methods helped them use the New Testament passage the way that it does. But the methods of that time would have been Jewish, and the Jewish exegetical experts were rejecting View. So, were they rejecting it on exegetical grounds? Or, like, were the New Testament writers employing a different exegetical argument? That's the argument made at the end of that, that, that statement. All right? Has everybody got that? Any questions about that? I mean, please ask, because these are complicated things. This is a time where there's no dumb question. I mean, well, there probably could be, but. Okay. Right. According to which view? Yeah, they told him. They understood. Uh, they they understood some things. They didn't understand everything. Right. So. But the, the, the Jewish grammatical view would be like, yes, they would be able to use their principles of interpretation and figure it out. But in that particular case, they're, they're not even, the New Testament writers are not even really citing it. They're just... Right. They would have been using their methods, yes. And I think in some... Now, that gets to a whole issue, like why, in many cases, why did the Jewish leaders not get it? Did they not get it because their methods were corrupt or did they get, get, get it because they didn't want to? Because, and this is a very important, this is a very important point. Okay, and a roundabout way, she just kind of stumbled into an important point, all right? This is, this is interesting, this is very important. No matter how good your exegetical skills are and your hermeneutical skills are, there's always one thing that will get in the way of us understanding the scriptures. Our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, our selfishness, our own way of thinking, our own mind, our own culture, our own, uh, our own glasses that we put on. So, so now you can have all the right skills and still, for whatever reason, I don't want a Messiah who's going to die. Period. I don't care what the scriptures say. I do not want a Messiah who's going to die. I want a Messiah to come in here and get rid of these Romans. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want them gone. 
And so if you're going to tell me I, gotta, I have a suffering Messiah who's going to die like a common criminal, I don't care what my exegetical method is. My exegetical method, I don't care. I'm going to make my exegetical method say those passages aren't about Jesus. Does that make sense? So, so uh, no matter how good your, uh, exeg- uh, your exegesis is, no matter, we, all are guilt- we are all guilty of that, right? If you don't, once you make up your mind, you don't like an idea. I mean, I've learned uh, you know, just arguing with people. If you've already made up your mind, there's usually no, re- that, like, there's no point in having an argument. Because I can't, no matter, no matter if I can demonstrate you don't know hermeneutics, even if I demonstrate that you've never read a hermeneutic textbook, even if I can demonstrate how absolutely foolish you are on the entire subject, it doesn't change your mind, right? That's what I believe! Okay, well, see you later. I'm going to go watch some wrestling or something. Okay, there's no point in having this argument. Right, that it could still... Yeah, it could have still caused blindness, right? But understand the argument is the New Testament writers were using one of those ancient methods, and that's how they came to those conclusions. Now, it does raise lots of problems. It does raise lots of problems because now, and theoretically, if I learned those methods, I could figure it out. And I don't think I could figure out Hosea 11, verse 1, if I studied hermeneutics for 9,000 years. Because it doesn't make any sense, okay? Right? And I think a lot of other passages that I'm like... I mean, when we get into Romans, when we get into Romans, we're going to be like, what is going on? Yeah, you start, you're like, how is he using that? You're like, what is going on? Yeah, so I, if, I, if I had to pick between the two, right, I would pick the census plenum. Now, as of right now, please note, I could change my mind five seconds from now, right? All right, that brings us to the third one. What is the third one? The canonical reinterpretation view. Man, just a just a, a light Sunday evening teaching at Victory Baptist Church, right? Just our little devotional Bible study. We can feel Jesus, right? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Canonical, like can like the canon of Scripture, right? Okay. All right, everybody ready? According to this view, when the New Testament writers quote the Hebrew Scriptures, they are reinterpreting these Old Testament passages and revealing their true meaning. Now, that's not the census planor. No, 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 no. Census planor destroys the, the human author doesn't even know what's going on. It's this dictation. Here, the, the New Testament writer is reinterpreting it. Right, so you get, or that there's you're you're allowing for the human element involved. You're allowing for the you're not destroying the human element with the dictation theory. Right. Right. So let me read that again. No. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The dictation theory is a theory in inspiration. Has nothing to do with these views, but the census planor almost requires the dictation view of inspiration. Right? Does that make sense? Dictation theory is a whole different theory. That's dealing with inspiration. Right? Everybody see that? Everybody understand that? You see why it requires, uh, it, it leads to the dictation understanding? Because these writers don't even know what's going on, right? They're just like... Okay. 
in the Hosea passage okay. that you've been using, for example, right. it has a historical meaning. Right. So the writer could understand that. Right. Then the New Testament writer comes along and adds to the understanding. Which view, which view are we talking here? Census Planor? Census Planor view would basically say the New Testament writer is being told by God, write Hosea 11.1, it's a fulfillment of Jesus. They're like, they just write down the words. They just write down the words. They don't, they, there's no like trying to process it. They're not trying to reinterpret it. They don't, they're, it's just boom, write these words and they're just right this way. So therefore it destroys dual authorship. Right? It's just God basically is the author and he's moving the hand. Right? Does that make sense? Right? Here is kind of a, a... Yeah, you've got... Now you could say this reinterpretation is occurring under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you have bo- both parties involved in a sense. Does that make sense? Now, I didn't know this was going to turn into kind of a discussion about... Um, Sometimes, sometimes I just kind of think, oh, everybody knows all these views on inspiration. So sometimes I, 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 I'm flawed there by thinking everybody knows these things. But, um, but we, well, we, can, we can get into a lengthy discussion. I, if you have Grudem Systematic Theology, which I've told everyone to read a million times, I believe uh, in his chapter on the scriptures, he goes through the different views of inspiration, I believe. Um, if you don't have Grudem Systematic, you should get it. Um, it used to be really expensive, but... Um, I did, and someone took it and never brought it back. Sixty-five dollar book, <laughs> okay. and it was mine. <laughs> okay, right. So now I have it. I had it on a Kindle. I've got, I got like eight Kindles, and I think six of them no longer work because I used them too much. So, um, so sometimes my books are gone. So yeah, I need to get another one for my Kindle. But uh, maybe we'll find. I'll try to find a, a used copy of Grudem, and I'll put it back there because that's a good systematic theology because he writes in a very uh, Easily understood way. Just remember when it comes to Grudem, I 1,250 million percent disagree. He believes God continues to give revelation outside of the scriptures. Everything else he teaches is great. Just whenever he gets to that, just skip it. (laughs) Everything else in it is good. Okay. All right. So just so that you know. All right. So, So there are different. So make sure everybody understands. We are dealing with trying to understand how the New Testament writers is using Old Testament passages. Because we're dealing with this, issues related to inspiration, which is a different issue, are getting involved, right? And the census planor view seems to push someone to a dictation view of inspiration, which I kind of reject. Does that make it? Now, you may hold to a dictation view, and that's great. You can tell me why and write a paper or something, okay? But um, does everybody get that? No, 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 that's fine. That's, no, these are because we're dealing with lots of concepts here. I, I, I can understand people getting confused about some of this, all right? The canonical view, and I understand some of you start shaking your head as soon as I read it, going, that's the census planor view. I understand that, but it's not. There is a distinction there, all right? So let me read the canonical. Uh, we'll try to finish the canonical view and then be done for the night, all right? It, well, hang on. It's kind of long. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll try to simplify this as fast as I can, and it will be done. Here we go. The canonical reinterpretation view. According to this view, when the New Testament writers quote the Hebrew Scriptures, they are reinterpreting these Old Testament passages and revealing their true meaning. 
The New Testament frequently interprets Old Testament prophecies in a way not suggested by the Old Testament context. And the modern reader must accept these reinterpretations as the divine explanation of what the Old Testament means. The the idea is that the ultimate intention of the Old Testament becomes deeper and clearer as the parameters of the canon was expanded with the addition of the New Testament. In this way, specific passages in the Old, Old Testament underwent a progressive perception of meaning as they became part of a growing canonical literature. Because the original meaning of the Old Testament is redefined by the New Testament, the Old Testament must be reinterpreted in light of the New Testament since both are part of the same book. But simply, the Old Testament must be read through the lens of the New Testament. Now, I I have a lot of issues here. I have a lot of issues here. I have a lot of issues here. Okay. All right. Let Let me read this last statement. The obvious difficulty with this view is that, once again, it ends up denying uh, the, basically the, the perspicuity, the perspicuity, I don't want to get into all this, or the single message of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament cannot be understood apart from the light of the New Testament, the true meaning of God's promises were hidden from those who were originally given those promises. And the Hebrew Scriptures are more of a riddle rather, rather than revelation. In addition, although proponents of this view often deny that the New Testament writers actually changed the meaning of the Old Testament, describing it instead as a shift from earthly to heavenly understanding, such a wholesale shift to the exclusion of the original sense is actually a shift of meaning. And I completely agree a lot here. All right, simply put, the, this view, and let's make sure we simply put, under, basically is arguing the New Testament writer comes along, he gets told you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and again, this gets to inspiration, I don't want to get too much into it, but the uh, New Testament writer comes along, he decides to use something from Isaiah, he reinterprets it and uses it, and that new use is a new reinterpretation of it. And now because I have a new reinterpretation of it, then I can go back to the Old Testament and now read that verse with the new reinterpretation. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? All right. Now, That's, that's the art. It, it, destro- it definitely destroys the original meaning. Right? Or it, it, it tells us that the original... that. Well, this is what it does. What it tells us is that the reinterpretation is obviously not known until the New Testament writer reinterprets it. So it it destroys, the reinterpretation could actually destroy the original meaning. Or the reinterpretation adds a, now they didn't say this, adds a second meaning. And that the first meaning was for the original recipients and the reinterpretation was for the later recipients who read it in light of the New Testament. All right. Now, I just want to make one thing very clear here, okay? Because this, I, this, because, um, this paper 
is, is, is like, I wish I could talk to this professor because we need it, because he's making a major flaw here, okay? Here's the flaw. The canonical view is not arguing that, we re, that this is true of every Old Testament passage, right? The canonical view is making an argument about 300, right? This, you can't take, see, this is like, if, if someone doesn't understand hermeneutics, they take this and go, oh, and because I know what Bobby's thinking, because you've heard me argue against all the time, you'll have preachers all the time, we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, right? And they sound so spiritual and pious, and I'm going to just, whatever, get out of my face, okay? No, I read the Old Testament in light of the Old Testament and understand what it meant then, Right? I know that, like, I know 900 Reformed pastors are like, he's a heretic! You know, it's about Jesus! You know, no, it's about whatever it was about. Okay, that's why. Ooh, it's so complicated. But, the canonical view would argue that if a New Testament writer uses it, then okay. Now we're talking about what they did with that passage. We're not talking about what they did. If they didn't touch the passage before then we don't go along and apply the canonical view to every Old Testament passage. Does that make sense? Oh, man, just... Oh, you, yeah, you could go crazy with this. And that's what a lot of people do, right? They'll, they'll, they read the New Testament, and then they'll go run to the Old Testament and go, oh, that's a picture of baptism. Really? That was a picture of baptism? Really? <laughs> Considering it didn't exist. Yeah, that's good. I don't know about that. Slow down. Oh, that's, that's this. That's this. That's that. that. Oh, you see the ark? That's a picture of Jesus. We have to be in the ark. And then we avoid judgment. Now, I, I, my Answers in Genesis loves that analogy. They love that analogy. And it does sound good. It preaches good, right? It does preach good. But when I go back... Am I looking at the ark and going, that's, that's just supposed to be teaching me about Jesus? It's supposed to be teaching me that God's judgment was coming upon the whole world and he saved eight using an ark. Now, some will say, well, the word, the Hebrew word for the wood and the pitch of wood, that's, that's the same word that re- references the cross. And you know, it's like just all this crazy stuff that people start doing. You're like, slow down. You're, you're like, you're just going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs with your hermeneutics. Just slow down. If a New Testament writer comes along and uses something about the ark and applies it to Jesus, well, either one... The census plenor view is going on, right? It had a hidden meaning. Nobody could have understood it until that New Testament writer used it. Number two, the New Testament writer figured that out by using some ancient Jewish means of interpretation, and everyone should have been able to figure that out who's ever known Jewish hermeneutics. Okay? Or number three, the New Testament writer is reinterpreting it, and now giving it a meaning that nobody understood until that New Testament writer reinterpreted it. So now I can go back and read it in light of that reinterpretation. Those are your three options so far. Everybody got those? Everybody sure? You mean repeat any of those? Right? You got it? Census planor view is the original had a hidden meaning. Nobody could see it. Right? God placed it in there. Nobody could see it. New Testament writer uses it. <laughs> Hidden meaning revealed. 
right? Got it? He didn't do anything. He didn't, he was not even involved in the process, right? Number two, Jewish one is the original, had an original meaning, right? The New Testament writer comes along, figures out that original meaning by using that ancient hermeneutical method. Everybody got that? Number three, the canonical view is the original had a meaning, right? New Testament writer comes along, reinterprets the meaning, basically, therefore, giving it a new meaning. And now I am to read it with a new meaning. All right? Now, all of those have their some strengths. All of those have some major flaws. But what, what do I want you to take away from this? All of you in this room have been reading the Bible for who knows how long. All of you have read Old Testament references in the New Testament, and I bet you none of you have ever even given it a second thought about, wait a minute, what's going on here? I, I constantly challenge you, read the Bible all the time, but understand that you've got to be thinking about what you're reading. You've got to be asking these kinds of questions. Because these are questions that, I mean, really should have been bothering you your whole life. I mean, they really should, because, they, I, mean, I mean, you said it. Um, I mean, your, your, your statement was the best. Um, when you read the New Testament and you see how they cite an Old Testament, sometimes it seems like ripped it out of context. And let's be honest, sometimes it does feel that way. Do what she did. Go to uh, the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section. Look at my list. I give you the, the Romans passage. I give you the Old Testament passage. Just look at them and you'll be like, what are you doing, Paul? Now you can, now you can try to figure out what's going on. Right? You got three options. So now this is what I want you to do. I want you to go through that entire list and write either an S, right? Okay, a J, or a C. Okay. Oh, y'all think I'm joking. I had to do that for 300 passages in the Old Testament. I had to identify what the, Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, yeah that's, that's the fun thing. That's the, yeah, that, you talk about fun. You talk about, well, that's, and you're just like, I, I mean, literally, I just started flipping coins. Okay, like, okay, I think that's, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. But, but you know what's frustrating is when you spend all that time doing it, and then, and then someone who's never had to do that wants to argue with you with the passage. You're like, well, will you go do that? Okay, and then come argue with me. All right? That's, that's why I always say, don't argue with me until you do the work. I had to do the work. Fair, right? Justice, right? Isn't that all in 2019? Social justice? Pastors want some justice too. Okay. All right, all right. Any questions? Now do you feel like, oh, I'm going to go home and read all those passages. I'm going to figure this out. Okay. Any confusion on any of the views? Please ask right now if you, if you have it. Oh, you don't think so? All right. Okay, well, Brenda's got one. Okay, what? No, 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 no. No, we're close. Well, you got the tools for those three. Because what you could say, because when you start looking at the Old Testament passages, you may, you may find some and you're like, well, you know, that census planor doesn't seem to work. That Jewish grammatical doesn't seem to work. 
the canonical doesn't seem to work, and you may go, I need to find a new one. And then you're like, well, I guess I better come back to church and find I'll learn the rest of them. Okay? See, there you go. All right. But I, and guess what? When I post my notes on this sermon, I am not posting the rest. I'm just going to post those three. That's where you have to come back. I got I to do something to you know, build up an attendance around here. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, uh, I hope that some skills and some thoughts that we have tonight will give us a, a greater ability in trying to handle these texts. Um, it's a complicated thing. But I pray that now when we're reading the New Testament and, Lord, we see the citation of an Old Testament passage that everyone who does this in this church will stop, even if they hear it on Christian radio, will stop and go, well, wait a minute, how does this work, Lord? And I pray that you will encourage us to do that, make us something that we want to do, not something that we have to do, because most importantly, Lord, we want to understand your word as you intended it. And I pray that that would always be our desire and always be our goal. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people say you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.